Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy. Now, keen-eared Economist Asks followers will remember I started last week's show by asking you to take part in our listener survey. And a massive thanks to everyone who has already. We really do appreciate it here. For those of you who haven't, we would be delighted if you could spare a few minutes to fill out the short questionnaire. It helps us understand how we make all of our podcasts better for all of you. And you'll find it at economist.com forward slash economist ask survey. The link is in the notes for this episode. We look forward to hearing from you. In 2017, a soldier in the Ukrainian armed forces named Volodymyr Pavlov Volodya to his family was struck by shrapnel on the front line in Luhansk. He was 42 years old when he died. To find light in the darkness of morning, his sister, the historian Alessia Kromichuk, began to write about him. But his story is part of a much bigger tale of Ukraine and Ukrainians and how their identity has been shaped by the terror of war. Following Russia's full-scale invasion on February the 24th, their grief and pain is sharper than ever. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how is Ukraine coping with the trauma of war? My guest is Olesya Kromichuk. Her book, The Death of a Soldier, told by his sister, was originally published months before Vladimir Putin ordered his troops to take Ukraine. Now reprinted, it reads as a testimony of Ukrainians' collective grief and as a study on the resilience and defiance of her homeland. She's also a historian of war in the 20th century and director of the Ukrainian Institute in London, where she lives. Olesya Kromichuk, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you so much for inviting me. What do you think it means to be Ukrainian? And how do you think that identity has changed since the full-scale invasion began on February the 24th? There's 40 million of us or so, and we speak lots of languages. All of us are bilingual, and that's the heritage of the imperialist past. I grew up in an entirely um, Ukrainian-speaking environment, and still I'm absolutely fluent in Russian. This is something that I think people forget. When they buy into this view that's been presented by the Kremlin of Ukraine as a divided nation, we're a diverse nation, and we're a, a nation that is a political nation that uh, is driven at the moment by very clear sense of purpose, mission, mission to survive and mission to strengthen itself and mission to stay united. 
In the build-up to the invasion, Vladimir Putin denied Ukraine existed. That gave him cover to enter the country under the guise of uniting it with Russia. And of course, he met with towering Ukrainian resistance and resolve. What do you think he fundamentally miscalculated about Ukraine? I think it's this idea that there is no Ukrainian nation as such. He's not the first leader in the Kremlin to have thought that the Russian Tsars thought exactly the same. They perceived Ukrainians as a sort of variation of the Russians. They perceived the Ukrainian language as a variation of the Russian language. And they missed the point. We've had centuries of uh, dealing with Russian colonialism. And what we're dealing with now is not that dissimilar. So we've come prepared, essentially, for another attempt to destroy the Ukrainian nation, because it's not the first time that is being done. Another thing that he's missed is that Ukrainian identity, you asked me earlier, what it is. I mean, it's been shaped by defiance. It's been shaped by resistance, anti-imperialist resistance and culture. I'll very gladly cite one of my favorite Ukrainian classics, Lesa Ukrainka, feminist, Fadisiekle feminist, who rewrote some of the European classics from a woman's point of view. And she wrote in early 1900s something that I think really summarizes Ukrainians. To suffer in chains is a great humiliation, but to forget those chains without having broken them is the worst kind of shame. What Putin didn't realize that we will never forget any sort of chains that have been imposed on us in the past or never tolerate anybody imposing them on us now. It's perhaps not surprising that Vladimir Putin, given what he wanted to achieve, should deny the existence of Ukraine and downgrade anything about its identity. But you also write that you think Ukraine has been misunderstood more widely in the rest of the world. And in what way do you think? Well, I think here, when we talk about the way that Ukraine was perceived in the West, we need to ask ourselves what shaped our understanding of that perception. Perhaps the reason for why Ukraine was seen as a small country, and now we all know that it's the largest within Europe, its voice was seen as somehow insignificant, um, says something about the remnants of our imperialist worldview. Whose voices do we perceive as credible? Why do we learn about the entire region, not just Ukraine, through the lens of Moscow, and essentially an imperialist lens. Why, when Ukrainians speak, they are labeled as emotional and therefore not rational, which is a peculiar dichotomy anyway, because you can be perfectly emotional while talking about war and still be very rational as well. Why Polish, Lithuanian, Latvian, Estonian voices are often perceived as hawkish and not necessarily pragmatic, when in fact they're sharing knowledge of Russian colonialism that is experiential. It's something that they know from history, but they've been often dismissed because we listen to another imperialist center and we accept their voice as more valid than that of the periphery. And one point at which those voices could have come to the fore was clearly after the invasion of Crimea and Donbass in 2014. And you wrote that the leaders of Western Europe felt that they could afford to ignore Ukraine. Why do you think Ukraine was overlooked then, factoring in what you've just told us? But clearly, it was also a warning sign if you look at raw geopolitics, never mind identity uh, issues or an interest in Ukraine and the people of Ukraine. In terms of a big red warning sign, it was there. Why do you think it was so missed? 
the idea that it's better to appease Moscow, and we've seen lots of examples of appeasement of Moscow one way or another historically, than to, um, well, than to call a spade a spade, than to respond to violation of international law. That uh, gave Putin the green light to continue to build up his forces to invade eastern Ukraine and to continue to lie essentially to the world that he's uh, not involved in this war. At the same time, you've said there's an assumption that Ukraine is seen as, this is a quote from your writing, little more than a buffer zone. So I think that also did play a role here. I understand the argument that Ukraine had been so persistently downgraded, not least because it suited Moscow's interests, but perhaps also, as you indicate, because the West had a bit of a deaf ear about it. But this buffer zone idea also has a kind of historical and a strategic grounding, doesn't it? Absolutely. We see how Ukraine was perceived as a buffer zone in the interwar period when Ukrainians have attempted to create their own sovereign state. And actually, for the first time, all Ukrainian lands, the eastern, central, southern and western, came into uh, one uh, polity. It didn't last very long, but they gave it a try. You know, it was very clear that this uh, desire for statehood was extremely important for Ukrainians and it lived on in the memory of the future generations as well. But unfortunately, then... um, Ukrainian statehood was not supported. Ukraine was essentially sacrificed to the uh, interests of larger powers. Something similar happened in the Second World War. The anti-Soviet fight of Ukrainians was dismissed too, and Stalin's territorial uh, greed was satisfied by not just allowing him essentially to keep the Soviet part of Ukraine, but also keeping the annexed Western Ukrainian lands that he annexed from interwar Poland. The rest of the anti-Soviet struggle was also dismissed by the rest of the world. I mean, how many people in the West knew about the Holodomor, the famine of the 1930s that killed millions? And that was a man-made famine um, in Stalinist times. And maybe if we understood that that is what the Kremlin is capable of, we wouldn't be so surprised seeing how the Kremlin is now trying to manufacture another international famine, actually affecting the poorest countries of the world. As with so many Ukrainians, this war is deeply personal to you. Your brother Volodya enlisted in the army in 2015 after the invasion of Crimea and Donbass. And he spent nearly two years fighting on the front line. And in 2017, he was killed in Luhansk. And in your book, you write about the moment you found out about his death. And I wonder if you would mind reading that section for us. No, not at all. It was a sunny Saturday morning, and I was on the underground in London, on my way to meet a friend in the park. As the train stopped at stations and the Wi-Fi connection reappeared, I got other similar messages. Good day. I am from the military unit where your brother is serving. Is serving. So he must be alive. I tried to calm myself. Give me your number so I can get in touch with you. I jumped out of the train and ran outside where there was phone reception. I phoned my mother realizing that I had bad news to tell her, but I still wasn't sure just how bad. I didn't want to shock her, so I started by saying that it might be nothing, although it sounds serious. I kept thinking of captivity. In my mind, I kept going through a list of friends I should contact to try and get more information, people who could advise us what to do to get him out. But my mom interrupted me and said, 
I got a call from a commander. Our Volodya was killed on the front line. She was so calm. I felt a strange sense of relief, so he hadn't been captured after all. Almost immediately, the relief was replaced by an icy wave of reality. Tell us a bit about your brother. What was he like? <laughs> I'd like to describe him as a, an ordinary, extraordinary guy. <laughs> he, was a, he was a complicated man um, who lived in the Netherlands for 11 years and then got fed up with his life of an immigrant and returned home. Uh, went back to Lviv, my hometown. In 2010, he could not understand why I don't go back to Ukraine, why I continue to live in London. He felt a lot more comfortable in Ukraine. He was an artist. Uh, he did not conform to anything or anyone. He always had his own opinion about everything. And when I spoke to his comrades at the funeral and after he died, they described him as a brave and free man. And that's how I remember him, as someone who's free, who will always value freedom above everything else. And he gave his life, really, for the cause that he wanted to defend more than anything. Indeed, he told me when he finished his first deployment and he was going back to the front line straight away, I asked him why he won't give a civilian life a chance again. He said, what you don't understand, even though you're a historian and you study this war and you've studied wars in the past, what you don't understand is this war is going to escalate. It, it just happened to start in eastern Ukraine, but it's a European war. And whenever I spoke to any veterans, not just my brother, they all said the same thing for the first eight years of this war, because, of course, it started in 2014. And perhaps the closer you are to the trenches, the more you understand. And by writing about this deeply personal matter as well as the national picture, I think you're humanizing the Ukraine conflict through the depiction of your own grief and the impact of his death, but perhaps also offsetting that tendency in conflicts when we get bogged down in the numbers of dead, the numbers of casualties on either side, the troop movements, the, what we need to understand. But it's rather different, isn't it, from the process that you go through as you try to bring these things together. And what was that like for you as a writer? For me, it was important to talk about the war in Ukraine. When I started writing this book, the war was completely forgotten. This is before the full-scale invasion. And I thought that one way to do it effectively would be to talk about universal experiences. Uh, grief is a universal experience. I think people understand what it feels like to lose a loved one. And I thought that through that individual personal story, I could encourage people to find out about the situation in Ukraine more. And then, of course, with the start of full-scale invasion, um, the attention was on Ukraine, but often still on numbers, figures, battlefields, and we very quickly become immune to numbers. And yet it's human stories that bring it back to um, bring it closer to, I suppose, for us to understand what, what it's actually like for Ukrainians to experience this sort of war. When you go back to Ukraine, in extraordinary circumstances to go back to your home country, what does that feel like? I think you said at one point you worried that you might be becoming a war tourist and, and that you had a, at least an ambiguous relationship to going back while the country is at war. Yes, I only went back once in September, so I was very lucky to have gone there just before the mass bombardment was renewed. 
and I went to my hometown Lviv and I went to Kyiv as well. And the reason why I resisted going before precisely uh, is what you outlined, that I didn't want to be a burden for those who, who are defending. For me, it was important that, you know, if I come, I come with a sense of purpose and not just to have a look what the country at war looks like, which was, of course, sobering and heartbreaking. Particularly when I went to visit my brother's grave, I realized that the cemetery was completely full, uh, the military cemetery where he was buried, and that the graves for new service women and men were were filling an, an enormous field outside of the cemetery. And I counted just over 100, and I realized that next time I come, the whole field might be full. The First Lady Elena Zelenska visited the UK recently to address Parliament. She asked for continuing support for Ukraine. And the tenor of her remarks was that she was worried about war fatigue setting in. Do you feel that that's a real thing? And are you concerned that there is more war fatigue around? No, I think it is real. There's there's war fatigue and there's Ukraine fatigue. I think Ukrainians can't afford to have war fatigue because they they need to survive and they need to survive this winter. But I can see how it's um, difficult outside of Ukraine to maintain that level of alertness. But Ukraine fatigue is a a weapon of war, in my view, um, that is directed at us by the Kremlin. And it's specifically trying to achieve the sort of tiredness of Ukraine and forgetting what the causes of our problems are. So, you know, to focus on the rising cost of living, to focus on our energy bills without realizing that actually the the cause for all of this is the same as the cause for the war in Ukraine, and that's in the Kremlin. Do you think the West is still doing enough to support Ukraine? And if not, what would you be advocating for? There's been huge, uh, overwhelming support, both among ordinary um, citizens uh, all over the world and the leadership of the democratic world and unity and solidarity, which I think Putin did not uh, expect to see. So that's another miscalculation. And uh, I know the Ukrainians, they really appreciate that support. And this is our shared war. This is a common war for all of us because it's a war not just over territory, it's the war over values that we hold. Really, Ukrainians shouldn't be in a position to keep asking for improved air defense nine months since the start of full-scale invasion. And yet, we are still asking for more heavy weapons, for more aerial defense, and um, really just better equipment. I'll give you an example of a, of a friend of mine who joined the armed forces in 2014. She's been fighting since, and she drove uh, one of the vehicles donated by the volunteers, Ukrainian volunteers, so an an, an ordinary vehicle. And she drove over a mine, and now she's fighting for her life. And that shouldn't have been the case. I mean, there are plenty of armored vehicles around. As you mentioned in that case of your acquaintance, there will, are substantial and will be more losses. And I wonder, given your reflections, how you think the country should prepare to commemorate those it will have lost, and whether that's something you've had mental bandwidth yet to think about. There's already been a lot of processing of the trauma. It's just now it's on a much larger scale. And so it will require a lot more help and uh, resources. I've seen really good examples of commemorative practices in Ukraine um, are the ones that focus on the family, the close relatives of those who were killed in action, and also the ones who focus on 
ensuring that those who survived are cared for appropriately. It's going to be a very long process. It's going to take generations, I think, to heal. One thing that I suppose we could be a bit more sensitive about in the West is not push Ukrainians towards some sort of actions of reconciliation, to understand that Ukrainians will not be able to discuss reconciliation until there's justice. I was about to say, what would justice then look like? Justice will have to be delivered on different levels. Of course, first of all, is restoration of Ukrainian territorial integrity and protection of borders. There's so often discussion of some kind of security guarantees in relation to Russia. But of course, we must focus on security guarantees in relation to Ukraine, the ones that will actually last. That's on the state level. On a more personal level, it's the punishment of uh, war criminals, of course. The recording of war crimes, which has taken place in Ukraine already. There are some extremely brave people working on the ground. This year's Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to one of the organizations um, that has been doing that work for eight years. And Oleksandra Matvichuk is the director of that organization. Reparations as well is another form of justice. Investment into Ukraine in order to rebuild the country, in order to rebuild not just the infrastructure, but also the culture that is being destroyed at the moment. Because, you know, this is a genocidal war that is attacking heritage and culture of Ukraine. It's a desire to destroy the entire nation. And you say in your book you don't feel any hatred towards Russian people, but they should take responsibility for the war. Um, I wonder what that would look like, also given the underlying views in Russian society about Ukraine. And even if the war does come to an end on Ukraine's terms, do you really think that that is possible that there would be some sort of reckoning, let alone reconciliation between the peoples of Ukraine and Russia? My feelings are very complicated. uh, And the feelings of hatred, I think, are perfectly justified. I would like to see realization of complicity. Uh, in Russian society. Realization that is not some one individual Putin who caused all of this and he's to blame and so on, but actually that uh, society as a whole has enabled this regime to exist, has not resisted the perpetration of this criminal war. Even those Russians who find themselves outside of the country have not protested en masse. Uh, Russian liberalism tends to end the Ukrainian border. To be honest, it's up to the Russians to rebuild the bridges that they've destroyed. You've said that the events of 2014 onwards have deepened Ukrainian civic identity and accelerated the maturation of a democratic culture in ways that continue. What kind of country do you think will emerge after the conflict ends? I mean, I would just say on a a note about Ukraine before 2014, it was struggling with some aspects of this, but also with corruption, also with a kind of influence peddling uh, between business and economic power and politics. It wasn't perhaps an entirely healthy balance, even allowing for the warts and all of democracies. What do you think this will look like when the war is over? Ukrainians have a very clear sense of who they are and a vision for the future. And that is what they're fighting for. It's freedom. It's freedom of choice, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, and so on. Of course, it will need a lot of rebuilding and restoration because of the destruction caused by Russia. But it's it's a country that is extremely united, that understands the price of freedom. If you go on the street in Ukraine and ask anybody to define freedom for you, they will have no problem defining it because they know what the absence of freedom is. 
You've mentioned the role of women fighting actively in the war as well as in many support roles. The number is about 60,000, I think, according to numbers coming out of the Ukrainian army. Do you think this will make broader differences to the way that women in society work in Ukraine? I'd very much like to hope so, and I have good reasons to believe that it will be so as well. Not only are women joining the armed forces in great numbers, and yes, the recent figures are about 60,000 and 40,000 of those are service women and about 5,000 of those are in, in combat. Women are also absolutely instrumental in the civilian volunteer movement and everything from procuring support for the army, financial support, provisions, and so on, to um, making masking nets. And it is being recognized. Women are not being sensationalized. What I noticed studying participation of women in in the Ukrainian armed forces is that in 2015, 2014, if there was a story about a service woman, it was often to shame the men into action. Whereas at the moment when we come across service women in the media, it's mostly just to describe their war story and to talk about their achievements and so on. So they're being treated as uh, professionals who have made the choice because they're qualified to make that choice. There's a paradox here that you yourself have remarked on the danger of the uncritical glorification of the military and the wider militarization of national memory. Today, for rather obvious reasons, the armed forces are playing an outsized role in society and being supported and celebrated for that. But do you see any potential kind of contradiction there between wanting a sense of a, perhaps a, a society less focused on the military and the war. Certain heroization of the armed forces is inevitable when the armed forces are tasked with such uh, unbelievable tasks as they are at the moment in Ukraine, you know, to face the enemy that is much larger and to suffer such enormous losses. I am not concerned about this at the moment for two reasons. One reason is that we still very much focus on human stories. And it's also up to us, you know, historians, journalists to continue to talk about human stories and not the institution only as such, right? And when we talk about human stories, we we discuss the person behind them like I am discussing my brother, you know, complicated people behind them. And the other reason is because Ukrainians have certain ownership of the armed force at the moment. This is not just a professional army fighting. This is much, much bigger force. So many civilians joined the armed forces because they either were called up or they volunteered to join. There are a lot of artists, writers, IT specialists, you name them. And that also gives them sense of ownership. What about the kind of patriotism that's been forged by this war? Do you see that outlasting the conflict? Do you see it in any way sort of changing that balance in the society, clearly to the benefit of Ukraine in the sense of boosting that sense of identity and perhaps getting that much more established in the global community. There are downsides to um, excessive doses of patriotism, aren't there? Well, it depends how we perceive it. You talk about patriotism and some people talk about nationalism and nationalism has had very bad press in the 20th century for very good reasons. But civic 
nationalism that we see in Ukraine at the moment is perfectly healthy. And maybe that should also encourage us to revisit our understanding of nationalism, what nation means. And if it's a nation that is diverse, that respects each other's rights, that encourages diversity, then of course, uh, I would like to very much hope that that type of nationalism and patriotism outlasts the war, for sure. One part of your book, which I thought was very poignant, but also funny, was when you described moving to the UK and how few people knew anything about Ukraine. And if they did, they knew the name Shevchenko. That's Andrei Shevchenko, the Chelsea footballer of note, uh, not Taras Shevchenko, the famous 19th century Persian founder of the nation. So I wonder if you could give our listeners a recommendation or two of some cultural figures from Ukraine, and they can be past or present. You're going to have to choose from a long list here uh, to seek out. Why don't I remind the listeners of the name that I already mentioned today, and that's Lesa Ukrainka, feminist, uh, modernist writer. A new, brand new translation of her Cassandra is being published now in a translation by Nina Murray. And it's a story of Troy from a woman's point of view. <laughs> and it's very much relevant to our world uh, because it's about, you know, who, whose voice is being believed. This is a woman who knew what was coming and yet was not believed. Nobody wanted to hear the truth. Another recommendation is the poetry of Irina Shovalova. A lot of her poetry has been translated into English. And why don't the listeners explore the speeches and the interviews of Alexandra Matvichuk, another woman that I mentioned today who's been fighting for human rights in Ukraine for a very long time. And this year, her fight was recognized and she received the Nobel Peace Prize. Alessia Komichuk, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me and thank you for discussing Ukraine. And if you have a favourite Ukrainian writer or cultural figure, do let me know who they are. Send your recommendations to us at podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. As 2022 draws to an end, we are looking ahead to what's to come in the new year as part of The Economist's World Ahead podcast series. My colleague Tom Standage asks how the war in Ukraine could play out in 2023. You'll find that episode wherever you get your podcasts. And on our website, you can read articles on what growing opposition means for Putin and where in the world conflict might flare in the coming year. To enjoy all of our journalism, why not become a subscriber? We've got a special introductory offer just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.